Okay, welcome everyone uh, to the third Hot Politics Lab this, um, the fall semester 2020. And um, welcome everyone. And uh, I'm, uh, we're, ha we're, having a, we're going to have a great talk by uh, Catherine de Vries. And um, uh, I just wanna apologize for starting a little bit late. It's actually a continuation of a long tradition we had at the lab when uh, we were still meeting physically, we always started late because we couldn't find the cables to connect either the computer to the beamer or, 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 or the, 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 the remote control. Uh, well, some issue like this. Okay, um, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to have Catherine uh, uh, de Vries here today. Uh, she is a professor currently at Bocconi University. Uh, Katerina and Bert and I, we go a long way back and uh, uh, Katrina has been a mentor uh, for both uh, Bert and I when we were still young and uh, innocent. And, uh, and I think over time, uh, this has developed into friendship. So it's, it's always nice to, uh, 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 to be able to invite such people to, uh, 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 to the lab. Uh, Katrina is, is really one, uh, I'd say, at the top of, of, of political science globally uh producing great articles on, on on very distinct topics uh like party politics european integration corruption um and and i'm probably forgetting one or two uh key topics here uh today she will talk about how to get rid of boomers and at least if i can see the title so that that's that's like a very important and uh socially impactful uh research i think um uh, but more specifically she will talk about how COVID 19 uh, might feel intergenerational conflict, as you can see. And uh, uh, there are people from two ERC projects involved. So um, one I'm not familiar with, but uh, the last project is uh, Katerina's uh, uh, recently started ERC uh, uh, project. So I'm really looking forward uh, to this talk. As always, uh, Catherine will, the talk will be about 20 minutes and then we'll have time for Q&A uh, and you can type your questions into the Q&A <coughs> box. Without further ado, I'll give the virtual space to Katrina. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Gijs. I think your introduction already illustrated the intergenerational. I was a mentor for you guys when you were young, so that means I'm old now. So in that way, we're already talking about intergenerational uh, aspects. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's really great to be, uh, to be here at the lab. Uh, I think it's great what you guys have set up, uh, not only you, but uh, everybody who's involved at the Hot Politics Lab. Uh, in some ways, uh, maybe this is also hot. I was thinking, you know, like, how does this relate to hot politics? Well, this is a hot topic when it has to do with kind of COVID-19. And it's also something that's ongoing. I want to stress, so I think Paula Retol, if she is correct, is also in the audience. Uh, this is uh, one of the, uh, um, is a PhD student who works on the Lost Project. And then Francesco Billeri, who is a uh, sociologist. Uh, this is also part of his uh, ERC project on more demographic aspects. And this is where the two things combine. So a couple of political scientists with a demographer and trying to understand uh, COVID-19. Uh, I do want to say uh, that uh, I'm going to go through the slides, uh, but uh, this is hot off the press. So Paolo and I were like still thinking about it this morning. So we're just going to present you, this is a pre-registered uh, pre plan. 
we're going to present you the kind of the results, the way they are and what we see. And then it's going to be clear that, you know, some things we didn't talk, think about properly and et cetera. And we would really like to have your feedback on how to make this the most kind of interesting, uh, interesting paper that we, that we can. And for those of you who kind of think about, you know, how, how you want to give comments, we're thinking about this probably as a longer paper and you see why that's the case because it's some of the results are more complex than maybe you thought. So uh, I think uh, this is more aimed at a, at a kind of longer journal article rather than a very short paper. Anyway, um, so uh, maybe some of you have been familiar with COVID-19 being called the boomer remover. Uh, this created a lot of conflict. Also, when you look at Google Trends data, this in mid-March uh, went up the search uh, dates a lot for that. And that's because on uh, Reddit, there was this meme uh, that went viral. Uh, and also on uh, Twitter, there was another tweet. Uh, this is a tweet that was, I think, now already almost uh, a million times liked. Uh, so like we're talking Donald Trump amount of likes uh, uh, on the boomer rover. I have been informed by a relative who's a middle school teacher that students are now referring to the coronavirus as a boomer rover. So the reason why that's the case, this is early data from an Italian institute about the infected fatality rate. I'm not going to go into, there's different ways of doing kind of mortality rates, but this is of the infected people, what was the fatality rate uh, by age class. And of course, what you really see, and that was also very clear in where the pandemic hit in Italy, uh, we're in Lombardy right now, was in places like Bergamo, for example, where 75% of the population is over 70, right? So this was what we know is that uh, the coronavirus really strikes uh, with people who are over 70 and especially of also who are over 80. So the elderly are disproportionately affected uh, by COVID-19. However, the economic impact that's associated with yeah, what we here call non-pharmaceutical interventions. So non-pharmaceutical interventions are basically not doing anything in the hospital, but doing things like lockdowns, right? Uh, one and a half meter economies, like these type of elements, right? So the economic impact of that, of that crisis, in order to save uh, people from uh, this high lethality rate, so we're especially talking about saving the elderly, if you will, uh, the economic impact really disproportionately hit the young. So this is data from the UK, where we look at the biggest decline of employment has been among the youngest workers, so those between 18, uh, 16 and 24. And if you go to other recent uh, uh, analysis in the US or in the UK and also in Italy, uh, they think that this will be, uh, you know, economists think and labor economists think that there will be a lasting effect for a generation. It might be a missing generation. Sorry for all of those who are going to be on the job market uh, soon. So this led also to a lot of kind of uh, tension over non-pharmaceutical interventions, right? So over these lockdowns. Um, so uh, things like written in the FT, like we're prioritizing the old and we'll have to make it up to the young. There was a big, the, the podcast uh, this week uh, in uh, The Guardian about why blaming young people for COVID-19 could spike and backfire. It's also the idea about does it actually help in preventing them from doing things. But actually on the top of the discussion, I have to say, was the Dutch discussion where you had a columnist, Marianne Schlagemann, uh, who wrote a, a column about so-called door hout, so that's old wood. So the element in that, well, why are we kind of like, uh, uh, say, why are we uh, uh, locking up the young uh, branches that are going to be trees in order to, you know, um, uh, uh, prevent those from dying who are already going to die, right? That's was the, the kind of piece of her column. Then Jort Kelder, for all of those who are Dutch, uh, no, he's always someone who in the public debate tries to put things to, you know, to the extreme. But he said, uh, why are we saving 80 plus uh, people who, you know, did not live healthy because they were in a different time, who were too fat, who, were, who smoked. So, you know, this is ridiculous. So these ideas of 
you know, that we have to lock up the young in order to save the old. So kind of in this backdrop, I was a Dutch person living in Italy and then saw many of the discussions being very different in Italy than in the Netherlands, especially when generational language or generational rhetoric was used. We kind of started to you know, think about this together and we focused on two research questions. Uh, so the, to what extent it has highlighted the trade-offs associated with non-pharmaceutical interventions, like a lockdown, increase intergenerational conflict, and intergenerational conflict we here try to measure by attitudes and preferences for policies towards different generations. And then to what extent do empathy and contact as well as economic dependence of all the generations, so interactions, if you will, and your feelings towards all the generations, measured through self-reporting, but also by varying country contexts, where we know that there are differences in some of these factors, reduce an intergenerational conflict. And the kind of the primary uh, point we take from that of focusing on these trade-offs and then focusing on uh, empathy is also uh, uh, work that was developed by uh, Claire Adida and others on the effects of pandemics on um, outgroup prejudice. In this case, she looked specifically at uh, um, prejudice towards Africans uh, when it had to do with the Ebola pandemic, right? So and here we try to kind of go on, on the element that those, uh, that, those, that those kind of lockdowns really brought home this tension between young and old, right? And we know from other research on housing and other things that there is potentials for intergenerational conflict and we just want to check if kind of the pandemic might be an accelerator for that, of, uh, uh, that conflict. So I want to go to the results, but very quickly in terms of what we thought uh, as expectations. So we think that highlighting this trade-off embedded in these non-pharmaceutical intervention increases intergenerational conflict or reminding people of those, uh, those trade-offs. Then we think that this is less pronounced among those who are in frequent contact with or who are economically dependent on the elderly, right? Um, and then uh, in order to get this sense of like that, that intergroup conflict might be mediated to some extent or prevented, uh, by empathy, inducing perspective-taking empathy. I'm more than willing to go back into this entire discussion in empathy, how you call that, but this is basically trying to understand someone else by taking their perspective. Uh, that's what perspective-taking uh, empathy is. By highlighting the worries of the elderly decreases this intergenerational conflict, especially among those who already report more empathetic concern. Just to give you a sense of it, we find evidence for one and two. We don't find any evidence for three and four, right? So I'll, I'll try to go through that in a minute. So we then do survey experiments, which I'll explain in a minute, in two different countries, in Italy and the Netherlands. And why did we chose Italy and the Netherlands? Because these countries are really at the opposite ends of age structure of public spending. So not just of a more older population in Italy than in the Netherlands, uh, but also that in Italy there's much more a system that benefits the old. It also uh, links to the fact that older people in surveys are perceived as having more status than in the Netherlands, for example, where the Netherlands is being a more balanced in terms of age. So there's as much spending for young as there is for old. And in Italy, it's very much geared towards the old. So you have a very different policy context when it comes to uh, yeah, where this pandemic hits, right? So just some, uh, some elements. So for example, in the Netherlands, long-term care for the elderly is, is, is done by, a, you know, there's a lot of spending in that in order for people to get outside the home. Whereas for example, in Italy, many elderly people live in anti-generational homes, right? And this was of course also a part of the pandemic, but it gives a very different context for how generations interact and how uh, they might be perceived. So that's why we thought of this context. And as I said, this is also reflected in public opinion. Age, for example, uh, explains much more policy preferences in the Netherlands than in Italy. 
So uh, to think about this context, we also pre-registered some uh, sub-country level expectations. So we thought that the effect of highlighting the trade-off embedded in non-pharmaceutical interventions on intergenerational conflict should be more pronounced in contexts where generations rely less uh, on each other to obtain care and resources. So that's in the Dutch case where there's a lot of state spending on these things and you're, it's not necessarily done privately by the family. And secondly, that inducing perspective taking empathy should be uh, should lower intergenerational conflict, especially in contexts where we know that empathetic concern with the elderly is already much more widespread, which is in Italy. Note that we find no effect for uh, expectation number two, uh, and we find evidence for expectation number one, but the reverse. So, and uh, we'll just, I'm just going to talk a little bit through at the end of why, why we think that's the case. And I would also like to hear your ideas about if we should maybe do another, we have some money to do a follow-up study if we should. So we have some ideas, but maybe we should or not. So just the survey experiment. So if you have comments on the survey experiment, and it's so crucial, we could actually run something else, but this is already run, right? So in that way, yeah, just to give you a sense of where, of where we're at. So we run a control group, which is a baseline condition, which has no vignettes. So you just get a set of outcome variable uh, um, questions, outcome variables that you have to respond to, but you get no additional information. So in this trade-off and empathy treatment, right? That's what we're going to uh, try to induce. So this trade-off in, in this lockdown on non-pharmaceutical measure and the empathy, they, we first want to make sure that people understand the generational effect of COVID, right? Because that's, that's where we start our uh, thing from. So we do a little uh, information clip at the beginning, which is basically taken from the WHO website. So COVID-19 is an infectious disease that can cause severe respiratory infections, pneumonia, and, and severe circumstance death. Although all age groups are at risk of contracting COVID-19, most people who develop a severe form of the disease are elderly people over 70-year-olds, right? So this is this everybody gets that is not in the control group. That's either in the trade-off the, uh, trade or the empathy one. So in the trade-off treatment, you get that informational text and, a, and an additional informational text. In order to protect elderly pe uh, older people, countries around the globe have enforced strict lockdowns that do not allow young and highly productive people to go to work or school. Due to the adverse economic effects associated with lockdowns, many young people might face reduced job prospects and find themselves out of a job in the near future. And this is basically taken from uh, some of those editorials that, for example, were published in the FT. So that is the type of language that we use. And then in order to make sure that people understand, have read the treatment, and, and this kind of also worked, we have looked a little bit into that, but not systematically yet, but it seems to work, is then we have the question, which is usually used by social psychologists, things like that people have to write something down. So think about the consequence of lockdown for society and how it affects different age groups. To what extent do you think that the effect of the lockdown is dependent on age? So for them to kind of think about the, the, the thing we want to induce. So the empathy treatment is that same information about COVID-19, right? It's that it affects the elderly more in terms of lethality. Uh, then they get many elderly uh, people have expressed how concerned they feel after being informed by their doctor about COVID-19 outbreak. One elderly man of 82 states, my doctor told me that I'm not eligible for an ICU place if I too get COVID-19. He told me that I would have to stay at home even if I would fall really ill and I could not breathe on my own. I feel horrified when I think that I may die. Uh, not only without proper health care, but alone since my relative would not be allowed to visit me. Note that this is taken from an interview of Newsure. Newsure went to Brabant and interviewed a couple of old elderly people. And this was a guy of 82 that, uh, that said this. So we're trying not to give any information that's not all, all yet in the, in the public domain. Um, 
And then the question is there, this is this perspective taking empathy, try to put yourself in the shoes of an elderly person, try to imagine the limitations and the risks that you would face as this person, what would you uh, do to cope with the mental health issues during COVID-19 outbreaks, right? In order to, to kind of induce that perspective uh, taking empathy. So then I think the number one thing that we are not going to repeat in any future survey is to have as many outcome variables as we have in this particular one, because it just becomes very complicated to do the, to do the analysis. Anyway, that's already said. What we try to do is to kind of get attitudes towards the elderly. We are, have a set of uh, policy preferences about things, policies that affect the elderly vis-a-vis -vis the young, and then we have a semi-behavioral measure. So the European uh, Social Survey, the European Value Survey has these set of questions which are also used to, you know, to get at prejudice towards the elderly. Um, I'm interested in how you think about people in your country, view the people of 70, reject, I mean, prestige, social standing, position in society, and it's extremely low status and extremely high status. The next one is older people get their fair share of government. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? So the thing is, you're not asking, do you hate elderly people, right? That's not a way that's not, that doesn't work because it's socially desirable. So uh, this has been uh, developed by, by sociologists to develop kind of an idea of attitudes towards elderly. Then support for policies. Uh, we look at uh, pension levels because that, of course, really affects uh, the elderly. Then things like people in their late uh, 50s should give up work to make way for younger and unemployed people. And suppose, and those are taken from the barometer, and then suppose two equally sick people need the same heart operation, one is 30 and one is 70, to what extent do you agree that the 30-year-old uh, should get the operation first? Then the final thing that we do is take a behavioral outcome that's again based on, uh, on work of Claire Dida, uh, where we would ask people if they would like to write a message to the Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte or Mark Rutte, if you're in Italy or the, Net or the Netherlands, in support of promoting the rights of the elderly. The message is completely anonymous and will be delivered to him in the next few weeks. And then it's yes, no. And then it's that if you do yes, you have a message. And then we code that message as in being in support of the elderly or not. Note that the most of the people uh, that uh, most of the people who, uh, who uh, chose to write a message, it was in favor, but there were also some people saying like COVID is a hoax and like things like that, right? So there was also some other things and those we coded as zero here because they didn't really uh, comply to this, uh, to this idea that you would have to support, you know, write something in support of the elderly. So this is just a model specification. So we have to deal with the fact that we have not one regions, et cetera, you know, that we have different regions and they might be differently affected by the COVID-19 crisis. For now, we haven't operationalized that. We just take it all out with fixed effects basically, but maybe we want to also look into that a little bit more. So then we have treatment variables, trade-off that compares a respondent that's assigned to the trade-off treatment versus control. Empathy is assigned to the empathy treatment versus control. And then we compare those that have gotten the trade-off treatment against those that got the empathy treatment, right? So those are the kind of three coefficients that we'll show you. So these are the main effects of the trade-off and empathy, empathy treatment uh, for these different uh, outcome variables. So just so that you already know, so we find virtually nothing on policy preferences. So maybe for political scientists, that's not entirely crazy, right? That we think that policy preferences might be driven by things as ideology. So maybe they're not as moved as quickly by these type of treatments. We do find things for status, so how people have the perceived status uh, of elderly society, their share of government, and then we, we find something for a message to the prime minister party. Interestingly, what we find virtually nothing on empathy across the, across the different measures, but we do find things on this trade-off effect. So for example, you've got this trade-off uh, treatment, you're more likely to say that like, the elderly get more than their fair share 
uh, of, of government policy, for example. And if you have this, uh, it's here not statistically significant, but in some other ones it is, that if you get this trade-off treatment, for example, you might be less likely to write something in support of the elderly, right, to the prime minister. So then we try to look at these empathetic concern. Remember some of these, uh, some of these hypotheses that we did. So actually what we thought was that this empathetic concern might move em this empathy, empathy uh, uh, treatment the most, but we find nothing on empathy. What we do find is that in the high empathetic control, the people who display high empathetic control note these are all measured pre-treatment, um, that uh, the trade-off versus control for the high empathy, actually, if you get that trade-off, you are uh, more likely to respond to that treatment. So you're more likely to display an attitude toward the elderly, which is not necessarily particularly positive. Uh, we find no effect for the Prime Minister Party. As I said, we find very little for the policy preferences, so I just leave them out here. Uh, so that's a kind of counter what we, what, we, what we actually didn't have any, to be fair, we had no hypothesis on the effect of high empathetic concern or low empathetic concern on conflict, on the trade-off, right? So we do find evidence for that, nothing for the empathy. And then by contact, so we uh, remember what we, what we thought that maybe this uh, trade-off control uh, treatment would be less pronounced for those people who have high level of contact, that there might also be something going on for empathy. And actually over across the board, we find very little uh, evidence uh, here. They're not statistically significant, but also the coefficients are very similar uh, across, uh, across the, the two. So we find less evidence than we would have thought uh, for contact. So then economic dependence, what we do find, uh, and here I want to get a little bit your thoughts about how to deal with this. And one way you could read and say, well, it's not really different because the coefficients are very similar in size. But of course, you do, you know, there's less people who, who are economically dependent, uh, uh, who are fully economically dependent on their, on their, on all the generations, right? So the confidence intervals are a bit larger for that group. But overall, if we, if we still think that we could infer, uh, I don't know the best way to, to, to go about uh, that, maybe to adjust that in the future, we haven't done that. Uh, yet, but uh, you do find some effects for uh, those people who have low economic dependence. So this trade-off treatment seems to work particularly for them, right? Which is not entirely surprising if you, and they're also less likely to, for example, write a supportive measure uh, to the prime minister. And that would not be entirely surprising if we think that those people uh, have less of this, are more free from, uh, from economic uh, burden, uh, uh, from economic um, dependence on the elderly, right? So we did some exploratory analysis, which was not in the pre-analysis plan. So try to try, just get a little bit of a sense of it. So those of you might think, well, this should all be affected by age, right? So you might be a different, we, we ran the sample below, uh, below 70, right? So not to get the elderly in there, but we actually find little evidence for heterogeneous treatment effect based on age, uh, but we do find triple interactions. So, uh, but we want to look a little bit more carefully into that. So looking at empathetic concern by age, right? So then the effect seems to be especially among the younger respondents, what we find, right? So that probably could make sense uh, that through that trade-off, people start younger people start identifying more with the younger people who are being traded off, if you will, in that, in that treatment. So that makes sense, uh, but we have to explore that a little bit more. Uh, also of, uh, of uh, ideology, we don't find any direct heterogeneous treatment effect, but there seems to be also something going on in, 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 the, in the triple interaction. Uh, and then interestingly, I think what we would be more interested in kind of conveying uh, and, and working in further, that we had also a set of COVID perceptions. So things, for example, of own compliance to health measures, uh, perceptions of compliance of others, but also questions about COVID worries. So how worried are you about the disease? And what we find is quite stronger uh, treatment effects on this trade-off, so on this lockdown uh, treatment, among those who are very worried about COVID-19, 
right? Uh, so that will be interesting to explore. Also, maybe looking in Italy, for example, where we have much regional variation, how much what your region was hit by COVID. It's try to look a little bit into that, but you know that is exploratory, right? It's not uh, pre-registered. So then the and these are the anyway. I'll leave it for time. These are these effects for COVID worry. Um, so then the last thing was we had this uh, expectation about different contexts, right? So we thought that in the in the in because if you're less dependent on the elderly, because the the policies are more uh, allow elderly to to live in an elderly home, for example, and there are more resources uh, uh, put also for childcare, that these effects of the trade-offs should be more pronounced. But actually, what we find is the reverse. So we find actually that these trade-offs effects are driven. Uh, by the Italian context and less by the Dutch context. And then when we, when we started looking at that is that there's more intergenerational conflict already in the Netherlands. So there might be a little bit of a ceiling effect going on. And then when we started looking at, and we don't find again something on, uh, we find it on, the, on, the, on healthcare in Italy, but not on pensions and work anyway. So when we're thinking about context, so why do we maybe find stronger effects of this trade-off treatment in Italy, which is counter to what we expected originally, is actually when, when I was in Italy already, maybe as a Dutch person, I could follow both of those medias, that the, that the generalized political rhetoric in Italy is very different than in the Netherlands, right? So this is just giving you one example where Marco Rutte, especially in his, herd, his first herd immunity address, right? Uh, did this sense about, oh, we, we need to kind of protect the vulnerable by putting them away and then, you know, and we need to get the younger people to kind of, you know, get infected, right? And then, but Mattarella was the uh, president of, uh, of Italy, was very much talking about the worth of elderly and how they had supported the nation and how we could not fail them, right? So the political rhetoric is very different. So what I was also thinking a little bit about, and Paula, that this trade-off treatment in the Dutch case might not be so so salient, if you will, whereas in the Italian case, you hardly hear this in the public debate. So it's more, let's say, countervailing information. So maybe people might re be reacting it more closely. It would be maybe interesting to look at, uh, do some constant analysis of the, of the debates in order to, uh, to prove that. I already said that there's some ceiling effects in the Netherlands. Um, and then we also thought that maybe the discussion of COVID-19 in the Netherlands very early on from end of March already with this, this, uh, this door out column was very, very uh, uh, in this kind of uh, uh, a trade-off idea, right? It was very pronounced already in the, in the Dutch debate. So again, not only that the generalized political rhetoric about elderly is different, but also specifically in COVID-19, it was already much more there. So maybe people couldn't, we, we did these uh, studies in June, people couldn't really be treated on that anymore in the Dutch case because it was already so pronounced, right? So in that way, it's kind of interesting for us to think about context and that's what we, I will end on, sorry, it went a little bit over, but to get a little bit of a sense maybe on, you know, that, that uh, yeah, COVID-19, by these trade-offs could fuel intergenerational conflict, especially for those who are not economically dependent on the elderly, especially when you're talking about trade-offs, less for empathy, right, what we find, but maybe particularly in contexts in which intergenerational conflict is not really out in the open so much, right? So maybe it's a way in which you can accelerate something that is latently there, I'm not saying that Italians don't have intergenerational conflict, but it's just much more pronounced already in the Netherlands in the data. So and then what we thought is maybe to do a follow-up study in Italy where we could see how we could how we could uh, move Italian public opinion more, right? So that was a little bit what we thought in order to, to kind of explore these context effects uh, a little bit more. But I don't know what you guys think. I don't know how you perceive that. So I just wanted to uh, put that out. 
So then kind of preliminary takeaways, very preliminary because we basically just did some of this. So highlighting the trade-off embedded in non-pharmaceutical interventions increases intergenerational conflict, but only when it comes to attitudes and short-term behavior towards the elderly. So it hasn't maybe, you know, it hasn't really had, uh, uh, has an effect on policy preferences. So the degree to which it then also translates into political, you know, outcomes is then less clear, right? We're, we're really not there yet. Uh, so neither inducing perspective-taking empathy nor prior levels of empathetic concern significantly reduce intergenerational conflict. Actually, empathetic concern uh, uh, increases the effect of the trade-off, right? So it's actually a little bit different than we, than we had initially uh, uh, hypothesized. Then high economic dependence does reduce the effect of highlighting the trade-off, but it does not increase the effect of empathy, what we, what we initially had expected. And that what we find, which is quite striking, is that also this heightened level of worry about COVID-19 increases the effect of highlighting the trade-off, but then not so much uh, the effect of empathy. And then the last thing I think is that these effects of trade-offs is treating the Dutch and the, and the Italian case next to each other, where we know that there are a lot of differences how, uh, in policy as well as in rhetoric, that we uh, find that the trade-off effects are more pronounced in the context where intergenerational conflict is at a lower level to begin with. So there's more that can be moved. Um, this is kind of what I wanted to present. I went in a very long and very quick uh, uh, presentation because I only have 20 minutes, uh, but uh, I'm more than willing to answer questions and any ideas you might have about what we, how we could make this better, how we could also condense it, especially when we have these five outcomes, make it more slick uh, while still sticking to the free analysis plan by showing it, of course, but you know, how we could make it, the message clearer would be very much appreciated. Uh, thank you, uh, Catherine. Um, as uh, as some of you know, but some of you might be new to the lab, um, you can ask your questions by typing them in the Q&A box. And uh, Sanne van Ooster has already uh, uh, asked a question. Uh, I will read it out to you, Catherine, and actually uh, add a little bit to this question. Uh, and then uh, you can answer. And uh, so feel free, uh, those of you who have been listening, to uh, ask your questions to Catherine. So, Catherine, Sonne's uh, question is um, um, Sonne's wondering when did you actually gather this data? And uh, I'd like to add to that uh, if you can explain a little bit more what the um, the sample size was and how this relates to uh, the statistical power that you uh, achieved in this study, especially in this sort of interactive models. Uh, yeah, great. So we ran the, the experiment in June. So it was actually a little bit after because we thought otherwise it's going to be very affected by the hospitality rates and all these things. And it's going to be, then people could criticize us saying, well, that's the most likely case, right? So it was already dropping off a little bit. We were unlocking in Italy, we were unlocking in the Netherlands. So that's why we, where we did it. I don't know if Summer thinks that that's a, a good reason, but that's kind of the reason why we did it in June. And then Bert, uh, we uh, ran it with 1,800 people in Italy and 1,800 people in the Netherlands. Just because we were planning, you know, in terms of the power, we were planning to do all these kind of uh, interactions, right? So, so, so hence we, we opted for more here than, than, than this. So we can then start talk about is this, you know, what should we find and how we should, should adjust to that in terms of when it comes to size and, uh, and significance, but that's a different. If you have ideas, then I'd like to hear. Yeah, um, we might return to that later. Uh, anonymous attendee, maybe the same anonymous attendee as last week, but maybe not. Um, the uh, clarifying question, uh, could you show descriptive statistics for the survey experiments or talk about the general composition of the sample? 
So descriptives and statistics in terms of means, mean comparisons, or we haven't made those yet. I'm more than willing to make those. I don't know them at the top of my head, but definitely we should. So um, uh, I'll, I'll, I, we just wanted to show some results. So we haven't uh, dropped in totally yet. So the composition of the, of the sample is basically a representative sample run by Contar. Uh, so we did the programming and Contar ran it uh, in Italy and the Netherlands. Uh, and this is on a representative sample that they that they bought that they that they offered us. Um, so, so one way what we could do, for example, in the Italian case, we do have some regional variation, which I which I mentioned, and also in the Netherlands, of course, there's been regional variation in the degree to which COVID wasn't really an issue. Uh, and we can also vary it a little bit in the in the demographic composition. We haven't looked at that. We had we registered some of those things, uh, but we just need to get some uh, some geo, we need to geocode some of the data. Um, and uh, especially for the demographics, that's much more of a concern in Italy than in the Netherlands. The only issue is in Italy that the demographic, concern, the demographic composition kind of correlates with how, uh, with COVID, right, with the effect of COVID. So, so we, don't, we didn't know exactly what to, what to make for that. But the, these COVID worry effects that we had, we thought it would be interesting to look at our people from environments where COVID struck, you know, very much or a little bit less. And probably in Italy, we have more variation on that than in the Dutch case. Thank you, Catherine. Um, next question is from uh, Joshua Robeson. Um, you can see some of his Danish connections. Uh, it's about deservingness. Uh, how do you see this study as fitting in the broader literature on deservingness, where older individuals are usually seen as more deserving for just the reason highlighted by the Italian quote, i.e., they have contributed to the to the social order over time. Exactly. So that. Uh if we just look by look at the average effects when it comes to uh, to the control group, for example, uh, in terms of like status of, of the elderly, uh, you know, what did they get from society? We see more evidence of that, of that deservingness idea in, and that's also what we know in the Italian context and in the Dutch context. So in the Dutch context, actually, uh, you know, I don't know how one would formulate that, but there's harsher attitudes towards elderly, or there's less of that type of element. So in the, in the, in the Italian case, we see that. And I think it's a good element that you say. I didn't think about the deservingness, but it's interesting in the sense that I have, it may be also something that we should look at in a follow-up study. I have a little bit the feeling that, this is some, that these are messages that we did in the trade-offs that are not very much in the Italian debate. Right, so because it's very much about the elderly and the worth of the elderly. So therefore we got quite a lot, whereas in the Dutch debate, it's a very different context, not just policy-wise, but I think also what we said is that the policy also reflects in public opinion. So we knew that, right, we knew that. But we were kind of thinking, oh, these policies will go this, uh, this way, like that, that's, then the Dutch will be more, more affecting uh, uh, on that, on that trade-off. But maybe what we find is also something that you find in other public opinion surveys, is that if people haven't heard this so much, but then you can move people more in an experiment than, than, than when people have, have been saturated, to use kind of Zoller's term, right? So, but the thing is that I'm not sure if we, if we fully convince you of that here, and if we maybe should do a follow-up you know, in order to, in Italy, to try to get a sense of if, that, if that's the case or not, right? But this is a bit what we, what we think is going on. Yeah, thank you. Oslana um, van Oosten returns with a question about the, uh, the, the, the feeling of the period, of this, this survey period where, you, where you've done this study. Her question is the following. Since you ran the experiment in June, I feel there has been a switch in intergenerational discourse in the Netherlands. Do you see that as well? 
youngsters are being addressed more clearly by Rutte. To what extent does this happen in Italy as well? And how do you think this would influence your experiment uh, were you to run it again today? So I think that's a great question. To be fair, I looked a little bit at that. That was a little bit later also in the Dutch case. It was basically from mid-July, uh, beginning of August, where that started to happen. It was the illegal raves. It was the illegal parties and so on. So that is another idea. And maybe I can talk to some of you. That was another idea that maybe we could run the experiment like again. I mean, I don't know if we have money to do it in both, but like run it again where it's switched, right? I think in Italy also, for example, there were pictures of the Navigli, which is the going out you know, area here in Milan. And there were all, you know, here you have to wear masks, right? And then everybody was outside without a mask, uh, drinking, you know, like that. So it was basically this idea that young people, but to be fair, that debate and that rhetoric, I also looked at other countries that starts shifting really in really kind of when the summer holidays, so, so it was really this kind of August where that really starts. And now it's very strong with students, right? And also discussion of, uh, of Margarita about student housing and in Delft and so on. So I think if we would run that, Sonia, it would be interesting. So I don't know if you guys think that would be a nice way of doing it. So I was just a little bit like, what if we get a whole set of other results that go the other way? Should we just kind of more deep, go deeper into these? So this is also what, what we were amongst each other kind of discussing what would be the best way forward. So any ideas on that, I would be very welcome. Hey, thanks. Uh, next question is from Joost. Did you look into differences between men and women? More specifically, men may be less sensitive to the empathy treatment and men may, in general, be less dependent on parents, the elderly, given that women tend to do Mantelsorg, have to do more in intergenerational care. No, great idea. We will do it. We didn't pre-register that, but we, in exploratory, it makes a lot of sense to me. And also we know in Southern economies that that's necessarily the case, that men um, are more likely to leave the home earlier than women still on average, right? So, and that what you say is also caretaking responsibilities are disproportionately affecting one gender over the other. So I think it's a great idea, but we haven't looked at it. Thank you. All right. Uh, Sander Stein, the next question. Thanks a lot for this interesting talk. To what extent do you think it would be possible to form a scale from your dependent variables? Or are you convinced that people see them as separate issues and do not take into account a general generational disposition? That's a great question. So this is also a bit of a question of Bert because we, me and Tyler went over uh, and I went to, I'm just saying you on pre-analysis plans. So this is what we do. So of course you get cleaner results when you, so basically what you get is you get, uh, um, you have the behavioral measure on one side, you have the attitudes on one and then you have the policy preferences on one. But we didn't pre-register that. So the results are easier to present like, like that, right? Because, because the attitudes go the same way and the policy preferences go the same way. And uh, uh, Paula has run uh, all these beautiful uh, graphs with that too. So we can definitely do that. And, and it also scales like that. So we tested that in either, uh, you know, kind of different, uh, different ways of, uh, of, of, uh, of getting scaling. I, I just don't know what's the best practice. So maybe Bert, we have an idea if, if we can. And then what we could do is then do that because it's easy. It makes the story a bit easier. We're a bit with so many dependent variables and then, you know, have the rest in the appendix. So we're not hiding anything because we'll show, but, but the thing is that we didn't pre-register it. So, so I, I was more thinking about doing the, doing the, the two attitudes and then the behavioral measure and say we also did the policy preferences. None of that is significant. Here, everything is in the appendix. We were thinking about more that, that rather than making scales because we hadn't pre-registered that. But I don't know what people think about that. Uh, well, since you asked me the question, uh, my, uh, 
I think if it's this is one solution you propose. The other would be to add the pooled models as an as a separate coefficient uh, in a in a in an overview uh, plot. That that could be the 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 other way. Um, but I, I generally, I think as long as you're not hiding it, uh, there are multiple ways in which, you, especially if these dependent variables correlate super high with each other, then really the the the, the coefficients and are shouldn't look that different, right? So so um, I think transparency is key here. And then then um, I think there are many decisions to be made in with what you present where and you, you have you've done an extensive study. So it's it it might need you might need to make some decisions of what is being presented where as long as you label it clearly. Yeah, and I think also with Sander's point about this lakes and gener generational concept, if you will, like we didn't have these measures all in one survey. So we couldn't pre-do and say, we should have probably just said that we were going to do a scale analysis, right? So I know I will do that now, but anyway, so we, but we couldn't test that before, right? So we were just not sure. We wanted to get as much of a generational possible latent variable kind of sense of different elements. And then I also thought it like that, but I don't know if you guys agree with that, that then you have these attitudes and short-term behaviors, which are things that you can move quite quickly. And then there's policy preferences, which probably just as ideology, we think are more long-term. Like people's, people's ideas about pensions don't, don't change from one day to the other usually, right? I mean, that's what the entire literature on redistribution is about and pensions. So in that way, that's also one of the reasons why we wanted to put that policy dimension. And it does give you a sense of what could you politicize of this COVID, what is the reason of this of this of this COVID thing, right? That that maybe we see some of these things in countries where the intergenerational conflict is not that high, but mostly more on these short-term things like attitudes that are more movable, but not necessarily yet on policy preferences. And then the question becomes: when a party starts mobilizing that along policy preferences, are we going to see that in the future? And hence that I was thinking, maybe could we by adding some of these mobilization? Uh, uh, vignettes, for example, could we do a follow-up study in Italy where we show that that could be, that could be mobilized through rhetoric, party rhetoric. There are some smaller points that have been made, so we don't have to lie. We could take something from an editorial of a newspaper, for example, right, and then use that as a, as to say a politician said or something like that. But like, uh, that was a little bit what we were thinking about. But I, I agree with you. I think that people have you know, that, that some of these things are, are as they are, they're clearly correlated. So I think that we'll move one of those things that, that were you know, suggested, we'll, we'll do that because I think this is just too, too much information. This is, I think it's, it loses a little bit the clarity of it. So we just need to, need to figure out how best to do that. Yes, okay. Next question is from Jordan Monsell. Uh, Jordan asked the following question, uh, a very interesting project. The null findings on the perspective taking manipulation are consistent with the operational definition in the cognitive sciences. Uh, it's actually more suggestion. You may wish to look at the work on empathy by Jamil Saki to explain the observed outcomes. So maybe if I can add a question to that, how confident are you that the empathy manipulation worked? And how does it relate to the work by others that have been inducing empathy? Hi, Jordan. Uh, I used to know Jordan from Oxford. 
and uh, and uh, so that's really nice. Sorry, I don't see you now on my, on my Zoom, but uh, so uh, it doesn't surprise me that uh, that Jordan comes up with something from cognitive science. So I should definitely look into that. I'm not aware of that. I was not aware of this uh, particular one. So I, I'm really super uh, helpful of that. So what what we are basing it on is some of the work of Vicky Vuka and uh, Elias Dinas and some of the work uh, that Claire, Adida, and co-authors. And the way that some in PNES, some in JOP, and the way that they, they do the, so the empathic concern is by CMAS et al, with this APSR paper, and then uh, uh, this, uh, this perspective taking empathy is from the way that they induce it. And we do it in a very similar way. We also had them to look at our pre-analysis plan, but they do it on oftentimes about immigration and immigration attitudes. So it's really a different group that we're using now. Uh, uh, people that are less di totally different from you, right? So that's the thing. And also something that you might become old. So I don't know if perspective taking would work in exactly the same, uh, the same way, but it is based on other research where we just, you know, try to replicate this uh, and then especially do that. So what we haven't done yet, as I told you, uh, we have these open questions so we can very easily check Barrett into what extent Conicord has worked, right? So uh, uh, we have, we've looked a little bit into that. It seems quite okay, but we haven't systematically. And we should definitely look that, at that systematically. And one way in which we could also do that, that is what, uh, uh, what Elias and so on do, that they do some analysis where they, where they actually, actually uh, they, they show the overall analysis, but then constrain it on those people in which it really worked to try to see that. But to be fair, I have also had a little bit in, um, in these empathy things that I think that, uh, that, uh, that it's quite tricky, right? So, uh, so to do this kind of perspective taking empathy. So I, I am also not entirely surprised that it didn't work. Although then Scott Williamson was one of the people on uh, my future colleague was one of the, the, the co-authors on this, on this immigrant uh, paper with uh, Claire Adida. And he was like, oh, this is a very thick empathy, like a very strong empathy treatment. So, so he, we were kind of expecting to find something and we don't. So, so that is kind of interesting. The only thing that we don't, uh, what we haven't looked at extensively yet, that we wanted to look at those people who are closer to 70 and for them maybe because it's so close to them that for them that works more right so that now it's this average and that we look at we look a little bit at the heterogeneous treatment effect on age and that that's something that we wanted to explore but i will definitely look at this uh, and i also fully agree with what you say that it's not so easy to induce empathy i think in, in an experimental setting okay um a follow-up from sander stein on the previous point on scaling uh, it would have indeed been great to have pre-registered a scaling analysis, but hindsight is, hindsight is 2020. In the current situation, I fully support Baird's advice. Transparency is key. Uh, as a reader, I would very much be interested in the scaling and the skilled analysis, but would interpret them with some additional caution. Yeah, I think so. What you get basically on the fact is I see what we get consistently. So we find these effects for share. For, for the status and the you know and uh, elderly get their fair share and they move in very similar directions as you saw of course that's what we find with the scaling as well right and then what you what you find on the policy that there's nothing going on which we didn't really find anyway so in that way I think the scaling really does clarify uh, the the message a little bit more but uh, but we will report anything anyway one way would be also to just show those two different attitudes to show the behavior and then say we also tried. Uh, uh, policy preferences, which we in the pre-analysis plan said that we probably were less, less hopeful that we would find effects on that because for the reasons that I outlined. So then we can say, well, in line with that intuition, we didn't find anything, but here, look, uh, we give you all of it in the, uh, in, the, in, in the appendix, right? So that's also a way of, uh, of dealing with it. So we just have to think about, <laughs> think about what's the best way. 
But I do think that, you know, I think from this, I think it becomes clear that it's a more complex story, right, that we're telling. So I think it doesn't lend itself to just say like, oh, uh, 4,000 words, here are the results. And, uh, you know, like that, that's not what the study is for. I think it's, it's a little bit, you know, a longer study. And, uh, and hence that we were thinking about maybe doing some content analysis of the debates and also uh, looking at a potential follow-up. So if you guys have any idea what you think would be interesting as a follow-up, we would be super interested uh, in that. Okay, Gijs might have some ideas on how to spend your money. <laughs> yeah, um, always. Um, I uh, yeah, I know you you. I mean, you can't change the current experiment, but I, I I do wanted to to add some reflection to that, and maybe that that will help for the future uh, uh, project, or maybe for the interpretation of the effects. Mm -hmm. What strikes me is also the diff the large difference between the two treatments. I mean, they're not only the one is about uh, they're not only topical differences, but also the setup is 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 quite uh, different. And, um, and so the I, one is about you mean the one is about a person and the other one is more general and exactly mm -hmm. yeah so one is a personal story and the other one is just uh, I mean I guess the good the good the good framing is that that uh, uh, the Marianne Zwagermans and Jort Kelders actually have no effect on public opinion I think that's one way to frame <laughs> it and I mean that's a story everyone wants to hear right so. Uh, no, but but indeed, there's sort of a factual story and a personal story, and 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 that 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 I think is a bit. Um, and then then I wonder, particularly with the the factual story, how how, how much people have really engaged with this. Uh, it's a it's a cognitively high demanding treatment, and I mean I, I had some pretty demoralizing experiences recently with with people not even being able to to answer very simple questions in surveys. So maybe you took some precautions for that, um, but yeah, I mean, I would be more than say playing around with more uh, uh, more of the social demographics and, and heterogeneous treatment effects. I would be more interested in in sort of seeing more treatment variation message variation in the treatment messages mm -hmm. uh, and the direct effects of that. So, so, so the thing is, in some ways, I think, I think you're right in the sense that there's a difference in length, which we've explicitly talked to other people about. And that seems to, you know, that, that seems to not be so much an issue when you then look at, because in that way, right, that's why we wanted to have these open questions. So that if we would have much less people responding in these, in the long open question, then there would be an indication of fatigue in the experiment, right? So, and that's not what we seem to find. Then the thing is actually, I, I expected Thijs the other way around. So I expected if I give something about a person, people are more likely to be affected by that than some general thing. So I expected actually, if there would be a bias, that it would be towards empathy. But like we didn't find that, so uh, that might be interesting. But the interesting thing I think is that people really engaged with this lock, with this trade-off. And you also saw in the prime minister questions like that were responded. I, I, I wrote some, some things like, yeah, uh, just in, in, in Dutch, like Martin, yeah, really lengthy things eh, that people write, like really lots. And it was so, and then people were luckily also saying things like, oh, this is a great survey, super interesting questions, because it's a bit different than what you normally get, maybe. <laughs> but there was these things like, Mark Rutte, I think you're doing fine with the COVID, but you really need to think of elderly people. It's not only about economic activity that you got a lot. You got a lot of that, like, and I think that was a little bit this discussion of that. Uh, that was also a bit in the newspapers, right? That that it was all about the economy, 
and it was not about like human worth or something like that, right? So that I was quite struck by in the, in the Dutch one. In the Italian ones, with, with Paolo did the coding, there was a lot of stuff about, well, don't forget the unemployed youth and this lockdown is even worse for the unemployed youth. But it was also a lot of interaction with this trade-off. And I wonder if that was also the fact that that was really highlighted a lot, right? So it was really a lot about this contention over trade-offs. So, so in that way, I, I, that, from that, looking at those kind of things in the open questions, I was not entirely surprised that we then found that. But, pre, but to be fair, when we put it in the field, I thought it would be the reverse because of this man of AT2 and things like that. So I wondered, I mean, that might also be something that I wonder if you even give this trade-off even more personal, that the effects would be higher. Mm. So if you basically had like a little interview with someone who's 18 in Milan and cannot get a job because of the lockdown, and this is all Conte's fault because he, you know, whatever, something like that, no? That, uh, that, that you would get more uh, uh, from that. And I, 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 I do think that coming back to Sona, that might have changed over time. So that I think that the elderly, versus young is uh, is more at the time that we were probably running it some is probably right that it was very forced about the 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 the, the cost of the lockdown on the on the uh, on the uh, on the but i think that what you're suggesting when i read from what you're saying and also what Bedford saying which we haven't done yet but to really give much more information on the open questions a code then give information on what that is or we can do a machine learning thing you know like to to show you that information and in th that way we are we are quite, uh, we are quite um, uh, comfortable with the things that we think that is working. With the empathy, it's indeed this question of like, how can you induce empathy, right? And is it really credible? And the one thing maybe that we were thinking about what we didn't do because it would be like to have like, I think if you do a little clip in Italian of, that someone is interviewed like that, you know, like that might be get more closer to this than just having a statement yeah. A guy that they don't really know, right? So it's hey, it's, or it's like, hey, I'm Gijs, I'm uh, 48, or, you know, uh, 78 years old, and I had COVID. And if you do it like that, I'm I think 38. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, like something like that, right? That it would be the kind. So, so would you say that? I mean, the issue is a little bit we run this, right? So I can give you that information, but then re rerunning, saying, oh, we didn't do the experiment well enough. I'm going to give you another experiment with the same thing is also a bit odd, right? So, so I, I, I think that the one way to deal with your question is to do more with those open questions, which we, want, we are planning to do anyway, um, definitely. And that's why they were there in order to, uh, to get a better sense of if the treatment worked. Yeah, uh, thank you, Catherine. Um, uh, a suggestion from Jordan Mansell. Uh, Catherine, if you're looking for to run a replication, one method to this is on empathy, uh, one method to use the uh, use to induce empathy or perspective taking would be to ask participants to recall in an open response a similar situation yeah. where they were subject to a similar threat or, res or restriction to the elderly subject. Results might be further uh, might be further conditions on whether participants actually recalled such an experiment uh, experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so, so one thing that I was, I was thinking about that is that I think one way, so we had thought about this, that we had thought about this, but we thought actually in this case it might be quite tricky to find a, a situation in real life that would fit itself in, in that way, but you know, like that, that's why we decided not to do it like that, but to still have this imagine yourself being like an elderly person and you know, like do this perspective taking. But I do think that it, that, it, that, that underscores, so if we would do a replication, definitely, 
And then it, it also underscores that it is important maybe to look at, uh, uh, to maybe distinguish the group that's close in age to the, to the person that we're describing versus those who are further away, right? So we do know that that matters in, from studies. So in that way, I think that would be a, a way I would go as well in the degree to which, uh, to which that's the case. The interesting thing is that what we then don't find, which I would expect again, that this COVID worry does the empathy, would have done something on the empathy, right? Because that's also like that you're in a similar situation, you're very worried about the disease, and then that might be, but that we, we also don't only find on the trade-off and not on the empathy. But yeah, it could be well, but it's just not well designed. But I mean, it's very in light designed with all these people who do find all kinds of results. But, uh, but uh, yeah, we didn't find it uh, here. Okay, uh, uh, thank you, uh, Catherine. Uh, I, I think just, I think if you can, for me, if you can validly show that the empathy treatment was valid, I think that's important, but it also, um, with these generally small effect on big concepts with subtle treatments, um, uh, I've, you know, who knows whether or not, this, this might just really work in very specific conditions on very specific yeah. issues. And yeah. therefore, I think it's important to document these no findings if you can indeed convincingly show that empathy wasn't used. Um, that said, uh, I want to thank you for your talk. And Gijs will do the formal uh, roundup and uh, announce uh, that uh, and announce nice things. <laughs> yeah, uh, also on behalf of me, thank you, uh, Catherine, for this, this engaging talk. Uh, and uh, good luck with uh, the follow-up research. Um, yeah, uh, when uh, Katrina said, uh, talked about unemployment, I suddenly realized I forgot sort of the most important aspect of, well, one of the two most important aspects of my introduction, namely the fact that we're searching for a postdoc. So um, uh, we'll be hiring a postdoc for a short period, 16 months, uh, only research. And uh, we're looking for someone who can, who can complement our team. Uh, so you'll need to be you'll be working in in something related to emotions in politics and uh, uh, there are a couple of themes I, 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 I advertised on Twitter that, that 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 we might think of but maybe there's something we don't think of and and you think you can you can make a big contribution and so I'm really open uh, to that as well uh, the formal uh, application will be online next week if I get the admin to move on it. Um, that said, um, Catherine, you will get our uh, Hot Politics Lab coffee mug. If you, yes. And, uh, I want it. I want it. I, I was looking for an example, but I, think <laughs> I, I actually cleaned up here, so they're, they're not here. Um, and uh, let me announce the remainder of the, the schedule. So next week we have Graduate Friday. Uh, and that means we have two PhD students presenting uh, uh, their work will have Haley Kelsall and Christian Peeple, both from the University of Amsterdam Department of Political Science. And uh, 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 Haley will uh, talk about her project, Political Information, Diversity and Effective Depolarization. And then uh, uh, Christian Peeple will talk about emotional appeals in parliamentary debate. Uh, the weeks after, we have an exciting program. Lina Aru will be uh, presenting on evolutionary psychology and citizens' dissemination of political news. Manos Tsakiris uh, will give a talk about uh, experimenting with the visceral dimension of visual politics. And then on October 16, uh, we have uh, Robert Clemenson uh, 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 from um, 
uh, with a talk about the uh, with a sorry with a talk titled "Elites Are They Different?" So that's what's ahead of us in the coming weeks, and I uh, uh, hope to see you uh, to see you. Well, well, you will see us. But, uh,